0: words that beautifully introduce our scripture this morning as we turn to the book of Zechariah. Just a few chapters left in this book that has painted the glories of God's salvation in such vivid colors. And just as a brief review, consider what we've seen so far in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has called the Jews in Jerusalem to return to the Lord with their whole hearts in preparation for the temple to be rebuilt. His desire for them is to have hearts that are true to the Lord, not in routine religious observation, but in obedience and in worship that's evidenced in a love for justice and for mercy and for a care for the oppressed that reflects his own character. We've seen Zechariah relate the, the panorama if you will, of God's redemptive work from eight visions which summarize what God is up to. And now in the second half of Zechariah, we've seen God promise to defeat Israel's enemies, to bring his king into Jerusalem on a donkey, to bring salvation to Israel. Even as last week he foretold Israel's rejection of the good shepherd, who would be detested and valued at 30 pieces of silver. But now we come to the last oracle of Zechariah. Chapters 12 through 14 are a unit that God once again returns to the message of hope for Israel. These chapters provide key details in God's plan of salvation as he describes the arrival of the kingdom of God for telling the work of Christ in a way that shapes our trust in Him and also our expectation of what is still to come in God's plan. This morning we're reading Zechariah chapter 12 and we'll read through the first verse of chapter 13. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to read along in Zechariah chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. And when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, and while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. And on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem." And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is God's word. Father, how we thank you for your word that you have written to your people. You wrote it, you gave it to Israel through Zechariah, and now you speak through it to us today. Would you encourage our hearts and draw us near to you in hope and joy and repentance this morning? we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. There's no doubt as we come to these last three chapters of Zechariah that it's going to take us a bit more mental energy than perhaps it would to look at a psalm or a passage in the Gospels to understand what God is saying to us. And so I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm asking you to wake up on a, on a Sunday morning and in, engage our brains a bit more rigorously. Than perhaps we do sometimes. But I believe the effort is worth it. There are glorious depths to these verses that will help us understand and delight in our Savior more fully. And before we look at the details of this passage, I think there are two preliminary observations that need to be made in order to put this passage in context. First, preliminary observation you will note that verse 1 says that this oracle, verse, or chapters 12 through 14, this oracle is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And as we read these three chapters over the coming weeks, we should keep in mind that these are God's promises to Israel. Now, of course, the wonderful news is that because of God's work through Jesus Christ, All of us, through faith, can be grafted into God's people so that the whole church can read these promises with hope. These promises can be for us through Jesus Christ. But it is still important for us to understand how God is going to fulfill these promises for Israel, for the people that he made these promises to. After all, God said in Jeremiah 33:20 that only if his covenant with day and night could be broken so that creation itself would disintegrate, only then could his covenant with David be broken. See, if God comes back in the New Testament and says, "Well, I made those promises to Israel, but they weren't actually for Israel, they were for the church instead." That's a bait and switch. And so we need to watch and see how these promises are for Israel and how God will keep them to Israel, even as we also see that the church from all the nations are then invited to partake in these promises through faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe that seems like a minor logical distinction, but it means everything for the character of God. Because even as a Gentile church, or largely a Gentile church, these chapters will help us fully appreciate the character of God who faithfully and steadfastly and truly keeps every word of his promises to Israel. And it's because he does that that we also can trust every word that God speaks to us. It makes his promise of salvation to us an utterly reliable, solid rock To all who will come to him over every generation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's preliminary note number one. Second, preliminary note the question that will be on our minds constantly throughout these three chapters is what are these events referring to? When will they happen? Are these chapters talking about things that have already happened? Are these chapters talking about things that are still waiting to happen? And how does that shape our understanding of Christ and his return? Well, these final chapters are held together by a common refrain. It's the refrain, on that day. Five times in chapter 12 and 16 times in these final three chapters, God says that all of this will happen on that day. Okay, what's that day? That's the natural question that we need to ask. And if we ask, well, what is that day? The answer is it's the day of the Lord. And all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, God's people looked forward to the day of the Lord. And that day consistently referred to a day of judgment and salvation. And most often the day of the Lord referred to the great day of the Lord. When judgment and salvation would come, when God's kingdom arrives through the Messiah. Well, when does God's kingdom arrive? When does God's kingdom arrive through the, through the, the Messiah? And there are a couple of perspectives or ways to in, interpret that. And some would hold that the day of the Lord refers specifically to Christ's second coming, when he will finally bring judgment and salvation on all the earth. And therefore, these three chapters are really exclusively looking at future events, which will happen at the end of history. But I don't think that this view does full justice to the fact that when Jesus first showed up in Jerusalem, he announced that the kingdom of God had arrived with him, and that Jesus himself said that he fulfilled a number of Day of the Lord prophecies. In fact, I think as we read Scripture what we see is that in the Old Testament, there was one day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. But when we come to the New Testament, we find out that this day of the Lord happens in two key stages. It arrives when Jesus shows up in his ministry and his death and resurrection. And then it is completed when Jesus comes again on the last day. And so I'll be reading these chapters in in that lens, in which case we should expect to see that these verses have been fulfilled in some ways already and continue to be fulfilled throughout these last days, but that they still also look ahead to a final stage in which they will be fulfilled at the end of history. So those are the two preliminary comments that I need to make. Let's now jump into the text. As I would say, when I think of myself, that I am not at all a movie connoisseur. I've probably seen less movies than any other 30-some-year-old that I know. But when it comes to movies, I'm a particular fan of movies that are written or directed by Christopher Nolan. His movie Dunkirk. Is a wonderful war movie about Britain's miraculous rescue of over 300,000 of their troops who were trapped by German soldiers on the French coast. And in that movie, he gives you a clue at the beginning of the film, which is critical to understanding how things are playing out and how he's doing the movie. Unfortunately for me, and I think many people, in fact, I think he kind of intends this, I didn't get the clue. I didn't exactly understand it, and so as I'm watching the movie, I'm not understanding how the pieces fit together until the end when it finally clicked and I understood what Christopher Nolan was doing and the whole movie finally made sense. Well, I think that's a bit of an example of how God's promises of salvation unfold. There are clues and specifics given throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, that help Israel identify their Savior. But the story often seems uncertain, and it probably in Zechariah's day seemed confusing. What is this about a a pierced one? What will that mean? How will that apply? Some of the details even might seem impossible until God's plan unfolds and we can identify his master hand and how we see all of the clues brought together in the person of Christ. And today's passage, I think, fits that pattern well. God's oracle here concerning Israel promises salvation, victory over enemies, and a repentance and forgiveness of sins but in an unexpected twist, this passage tells us that this great salvation will come through piercing and suffering and mourning. As we work through these verses, what I want to do is I want us to see the character of God, I want us to see God's victory over the nations, and then I want us to see God's victory over Israel's hearts. So let's work through that as we begin to look at God's plan of salvation that he's laying out. First and fairly briefly, let's look at the character of God who's making these promises. We read in verse one that the Lord is described as the one who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and created mankind, forming the spirit of man within him. When we read God's promises, many times they can seem incredible. And how much more would these promises have seemed incredible to Israel in the 5th century BC, as a tiny province under complete control of the Empire of Persia, being told that Israel will play the key role in the history of the world and the downfall of the nations? How is that possible? Well, the Lord starts by reminding us who's making this promise it's the Lord who by the very word of his power and the word of his authority spoke and all the galaxies sprang into existence and all the nanoparticles of the the universe came together. If God, the all-powerful and all-sovereign creator, could create all that out of nothing, then certainly he is capable of recreation. Certainly he is capable of bringing all things in history to fulfillment as he has promised. I think it's sort of like something that we might do in our own home. Perhaps we need to move a, a heavy oak cabinet in our living room, and we think, well, just because I can't move that oak cabinet, well, surely no one could move that. But then we find out that there's Olympic weightlifters who can lift 600 pounds by themselves. Well, they could move the oak cabinet. Just because I can't do it or I might throw my back out trying to move it doesn't mean he can't. And I think the Lord's reminding us just because we can't fathom how he's going to bring about his promises doesn't mean that the Lord who speaks all things into existence by the word of his power can't fulfill his words. And so we see the character of God is fully trustworthy. That's the prelude. But now let's look, secondly, at verses 2 through 9, where God describes how he will bring about the defeat of the nations. As you follow these verses, you should see that God is describing an increasingly, uh, progressively increasing judgment against the nations. It starts in verse 2 where Jerusalem becomes a cup of staggering to the nations around them. And the picture is one of all the nations gathering to feast on Jerusalem. But when they come to drink the cup of the feast, it turns out to be a cup of God's wrath, leaving them reeling in drunkenness instead of celebrating in victory. And then in verse 3, it goes a step further. God promises to make Jerusalem a heavy stone so that those who try to lift it or take it will hurt themselves. When I read that, I think the the picture that most clearly comes to my mind is moving. I'm sure plenty of you have moved houses and you've got many boxes stacked up and you're carrying boxes and you carry the, the box of hangers and you carry the box of kitchen utensils and then you go to pick up the next buck... The next box, and it's full of books. And you didn't know there was a box full of books there, and you go to lift it and you pull your back out of whack or you, you drop it on your toe. It's not what you were expecting. And that's the picture that the nations think it will be easy to take Jerusalem, but they go to take it up and instead they are hurt by it. Then in verse 4, God moves further and promises to strike the horses of the nations with madness and blindness. With panic. And Zechariah c- concludes with this beautiful comment that God's people will watch this unexpected protection and say, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. That is, of course, what all God's people should acknowledge day after day when we see the Lord strengthen and rescue his people from the world and from the devil, which seem too great for us. But it will be particularly what we will say in the last days and what God's people in Israel will say when they see God come around them and rescue them from all the forces of Satan and the Lord wins victory for his people. And the process is completed in verse 9 when God promises on that day to destroy all the nations. So do you see the progression here from staggering to injury to madness and blindness to destruction? is the progressively increasing judgment that God promises to bring about on the nations through his people. But I want you to notice that God strengthens his people in this process to be part of this victory in this conflict. And you see that in verses 6 through 8. God's people will be like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, a flaming torch among sheaves. If you don't spend a lot of time among blazing pots... Just notice that this is describing tinder, things that will go up in flame easily, and you're tossing a torch into it, which will consume them. And so God's people will be strengthened to the point, and I love this description, where those in the tents of Judah will be saved first, and then in the house of David in Jerusalem. And it says that the feeblest of them shall be like David himself and their leaders, or the house of David Shall be like the angel of the Lord in their spirit given strength. And so God promises to bring about the strengthening of His people as they consume the nations around them through His strength. Well, first question maybe that comes to mind is well, when and how will these verses be fulfilled? And as I understand Scripture, I think we would say that the first stage of this battle, the first stage of this victory of the day of the Lord, was fought in Jerusalem in Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection when a fatal blow was dealt to Satan and to his forces in the nations. And then we can say that it has continued to play out in the early church as many in Israel turned to the Lord but others tried to stamp them out. Maybe you think of Saul, or you think of the Pharisees trying to stamp out those who had turned to Christ. Or maybe you think of Rome, who kicked the Jews out and tried to persecute them, and yet the Lord sustained them, and their numbers grew, and He protected them. Maybe you think throughout the time of the last 2,000 years, how many times have nation after nation sought to destroy God's people, both Israel and all those who have joined themselves to the name of the Lord through Christ. How many times has Rome or Russia or Iran or North Korea or China sought to stamp out God's people? And yet how many times have those nations failed and fallen and God's kingdom continues to grow? Who knows what nation will be added to this list next that will try to stamp out God's people But we have this precious promise and we see God's faithfulness again and again, proving that age-old saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the more the nations rail against God and his people, the more God's kingdom flourishes to the glory of his name. And then, of course, we still wait, the final stage. The final climactic battle when God will fully and finally fulfill this promise to Israel and to all those who have joined themselves to his name, strengthening them in the Lord so that the nations opposed to them will be destroyed forever. For God's people, nothing can be more hopeful, I think, than this end of the story, the guarantee that God wins, that the nations that are opposed to him are defeated And that God will bring about this victory by strengthening his people to endure and accomplish his purposes in a victory that is already guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Christ. But if you're following Zechariah's train of thought here, maybe there's a question in your mind, maybe something that is confusing. Because if you were here with us last week, we read Zechariah chapter 11. And in Zechariah chapter 11, Israel rejected the good shepherd that God sent to them, and God had told them that punishment and devouring and destruction was ahead. One commentator calls Zechariah 11 the darkest prophecy in the Old Testament, as its words of judgment appear to leave Israel desolate. How can this message of hope and victory come to Israel? But we have to remember God's promises, which he is always faithful to. Remember back to Zechariah 10. Zechariah 10, where God had promised hope for Israel, promised that one day they would be as though they had not been rejected. And so there is hope for a spiritual reversal in Israel. And the question is, how? What will bring Israel back to their God and their Savior And that's what Zechariah describes in the coming verses, as God wins victory over Israel's hearts. And the crux of the hope for Israel begins when God will pour out on the house of David a spirit of grace. And I realize that the ESV doesn't do this, but I think that spirit should be capitalized because God's not pouring out a general attitude of grace or environment of grace. He's pouring out his Holy Spirit by his grace, He's promising to pour out His Spirit to bring about repentance and pleas for mercy. God's promise here is right in line with what He had said in Ezekiel. When God said, O oh, house of Israel, I am about to act. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It's the same promise that God is echoing here All hope for Israel, just as the hope for you and for me, starts when God graciously pours out His Spirit on us and changes our hearts that we might come to Him. Well, then Zechariah states specifically what this Spirit's going to do. This Spirit will change Israel's hearts so that they will look on the one who was pierced and they will mourn for Him. They will mourn for Him as one mourns the loss of an only child. And they will mourn for him as Israel mourned for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now we probably understand what it means to mourn for the loss of an only child. We probably don't know what it means to mourn like Israel did in the plain of Megiddo. But if we think back to our history, the plain of Megiddo was where King Josiah, the last good king of Judah, was slain, pierced by an arrow. And Israel mourned for him. In fact, the day of his death became a day of national mourning for Israel. And so God is giving us a picture of personal mournings for the loss of a child and national mourning as on the day of the death of Josiah. God's Spirit is going to bring about this day of genuine repentance, of true grief in Israel over another one who would be pierced. But if you notice carefully the wording, this would be one that Israel themselves would pierce. When they look on me whom they have pierced. And their repentance, their repentance is described as both widespread and individual. It is described by saying that the land shall mourn and all the families that are left shall mourn. But it's also described individually as in each family the husbands and wives by themselves will mourn. And so we have this picture of great repentance amongst the land of Israel. Surely, an Israelite who is hearing or reading this prophecy must wonder, who is this pierced one? Who is going to be pierced? Who are we going to pierce that's going to bring about this great repentance? Here's that unexpected twist of death and suffering, the baffling detail that was unexplained in Zechariah's day. And yet, like a Christopher Nolan movie is the clue we need to understand God's plan of redemption. Because certainly, when God is speaking here, and you recognize that in this prophecy, God is the one speaking, and he says, they will look on me on him whom they have pierced. God is promising himself to come and be the subject of suffering. And certainly Israel might be saying, well, that's impossible. How could God be pierced? How could this happen? But then comes Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who is pierced on the cross. And in his death and resurrection becomes the moment that brings clarity to the whole story. And suddenly we can look back from the beginning and see how God was unfolding his plan of redemption and giving us clues which all fit together perfectly in his sovereignty in the person of Jesus Christ. And as Israel repents and comes to the Savior, the wonderful hope is given in chapter 13, verse 1. A fountain is opened for the house of David to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Not a drop, not a little stream, but a fountain. And one commentator notes that throughout the Old Testament, a fountain is repeatedly used as a metaphor for something that is overflowing, never failing, and inexhaustible in its supply. It's like looking for a trickle of water and coming across a waterfall. And so here we have this promise to Israel, that a fountain would be opened to forgive sin and cleanse sin through the death of Jesus Christ. Across generations of disobedience, that is what Israel needed. And for all of us, across our repeated sins and selfishness, across our repeated anxieties and despairs, across our repeated turning to therapies and strategies and political ideologies and possessions in an attempt to overcome our emptiness and our need and our failures, this is what we need, a fountain to be opened for forgiveness and cleansing. And Zechariah tells us that this fountain is opened because of the pierced one, who is to come, Jesus Christ, slain for us. And thanks be to God that this promise is given to Israel, but this promise is also opened to all throughout the nations who would come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. Well, how is this promise fulfilled to Israel? Well, we can see this promise begin to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, can't we? When God pours out his Spirit on Jerusalem. And Peter, in his sermon, I think perhaps, if not quoting, referencing Zechariah, when he says, O men of Israel, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus whom you crucified, the one whom you pierced, Lord and Christ, and 3,000 souls of Israel turned to him that day. That's the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy and throughout the ages, more from God's people of Israel have turned to Christ. And we'll look more fully at this next week, but I think one day we will look back and, or look ahead and see many more from God's people turning to Jesus Christ as their Savior. As God fulfills this promise of what He will do for His people. Well, this promise continues And we also have the joy of being able to receive it through Jesus Christ. And our confidence comes as we see God, who is faithful, fulfill it to his own people and then to all the nations as he's also promised. Well, as we end this morning, we have such a wonderful promise in the faithfulness of God. But let me end by just encouraging us to perhaps dwell on two thoughts this week. First, Note that when God's spirit of grace is poured out, God's spirit brings about repentance that is marked by deep grief. Grief so great that it is described as mourning for the loss of an only child. And I wonder, as you and I look at our own lives and our own hearts and our response to our sin, how many of us could say that when we see our sin, our grief over our sin would match the grief of losing our only child. Does that describe our view of sin and our grief when we see it in our hearts? More often, I think, we tend to minimize our sin. We excuse our sin, or we quickly ask for forgiveness and move past our sin. And yet the all-glorious God, our loving Savior, is so holy, And so I would pray that this mourning for our sin, this this true and deep grief over our sin would mark us as the people of God and that as we mourn and grieve over our sin, it would all the more magnify the cleansing that is open for us through Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then second, would this passage encourage us with shouts of joy as the only appropriate response for us to this passage this morning. Because this passage offers us the character of God, the all-powerful Creator, the all-faithful One who fulfills all His promises as the foundation for our hope. Salvation is promised. The nations will be defeated. God will strengthen His people to join in victory. And all this is accomplished and fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. And that very Jesus who accomplished all of this by being pierced on the cross invites us to know him, to belong to him, to find this cleansing and this forgiveness and this salvation in him. And if we will receive that offer and put our trust in him, grounded in the character of God, then we have every reason for abundant joy today and every day this week. Thanks be to such a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how thankful we are that you are the God who created all things by the word of your power and so are able to bring about the fulfillment of every promise by the word of your power. And how thankful that the promise you have given us is that All who turn to Jesus Christ, that pierced one who has poured out his blood as a fountain of cleansing, all who come to him in faith will be forgiven and cleansed of their sin. What a hope of salvation. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in us, even those who have trusted in Christ. Would you work in us a deep grief over our sin, that we might all the more rejoice in our Savior as we grow more and more in Him and like Him and to His glory. We pray this for His sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.